So we've uh, heard together Luke's account of that first Good Friday, the, the death of the Lord Jesus. Luke clearly believes that Jesus' death is one of the most important events in the whole of hu human history. Why? Why does Luke want us to focus our attention here? It's unusual. Biographies rarely give more than a few lines to the end, end of a person's life. Why do we need to take Jesus' death seriously? And Luke's answer here is very simple. We need to take Jesus' death seriously because if we do, it'll be our path to paradise. We're going to spend a few minutes now uh, considering three characters or groups of characters here who help us by good example or by bad to discover that path to paradise for ourselves. First, see with me the crowd there in chapter 23, verses 32 to 39. Uh, crucifixions in this time and place were common, but this crucifixion drew an uncommon audience around Jesus' cross were gathered a coalition of people united in their hatred of the Lord Jesus. Some, we discover here, were influential people. See that in verse 35. Rulers, leaders, those to whom the ordinary people listened. And the verdict of these influential people when it comes to Jesus is very clear. Have a look at verse 35. The rulers scoffed at him, saying, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. They've already made up their mind, despite all of the evidence Jesus has given over a period of several years, that Jesus is an imposter and deserves to die. And the scorn of the leaders here, paired with the taunting of the soldiers there in verse 37 and 38, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. It all has a powerful effect on one of the criminals on a cross next to Jesus. Look at verse 39 with me. See how he parrots the words and the unbelief of the leadership. We read verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Tragedy, as we'll see later, is that Jesus absolutely, in an ultimate sense, could have saved this man if he'd been asked. But this criminal shows us how hard we find it to take Jesus seriously when the culture around us has written him off. And that, of course, is what large numbers of influential people in our own culture have done today. Common, isn't it, to hear jokes at Jesus' expense? Some might reluctantly accept that Jesus existed. Some even grant that Jesus was an impressive teacher. The one thing many won't allow is that Jesus was and is who he proved himself to be over and over again. The Christ. God's King. So who might we be in this first section of the story? Well, we might be more like those influential who've made up their minds on Jesus. They scoff at his claims to be the Christ. We, we've closed our mind to him, regardless of the evidence presented to us. Or we might be a bit more like the crowd there in verse 35. We skipped over them. Verse 35, they're not rulers, they're not soldiers. 
the people, bystanders we read. They're watching, they're taking it all in. They can see the Lord Jesus there on the cross, the one who claimed to be the Christ, God's King. They can hear, too, the insults of the rulers and the soldiers and of one of the crucified criminals next to Jesus, and they have a decision to make. Will they accept the line being force-fed them by the rulers and the soldiers? Or will they look at the man Jesus for themselves? Will they follow the evidence where it leads and make up their own minds? And what about us? How will we make up our minds on the person of Jesus? Are we content to believe whatever we're told to believe by influential people in our culture? Or are we going to listen to Luke here and follow the evidence for ourselves? Well, the crowd, and then secondly, the criminal, or at least the second criminal there in verse 40 to 43. Two criminals die either side of the Lord Jesus. We've met the first in verse 39. Now, in verse 40, Luke moves to the other side of the Lord and the second criminal. And unlike the first, he isn't parroting the taunts of the anti-Jesus group. He isn't content to blindly follow popular opinion. He's interested in the truth about Jesus and about himself, too. Death has a way of focusing the mind, of making a person rethink the way that they've lived their life. Things that seemed very important before don't seem so important now in the face of death. Things like money and career and fame. And things that seemed unimportant before, mistakes, thoughtless words spoken, selfish decisions made, godless lives lived, suddenly become very important in the face of an imminent meeting with God. So here we have a man who, who is about to meet his maker and his judge. He knows that if the man on the middle cross really is God's king, then hurling abuse at him is a crazy thing to do. But notice this criminal knows himself to be a sinner, a bad person. Verse 41, he says so. He knows even crucifixion wasn't too severe a penalty for whatever it is he'd done with his life. He deserved the hell that he was in and the hell that he faced after death. But what can he possibly do about it? He has no time to make amends. Now, even if by some miracle he could get down from the cross and be given a second chance to do good instead of bad, he could never possibly make up for the things he'd done before. He couldn't tip the scales away from hell and toward heaven. This is, though, what religion prescribes. A life spent trying to tip the scales toward heaven, desperately hoping that my good outweighs my bad when the time comes. But this man knows what we all need to know. It won't work. And so he does the only thing he can do. He turns to the man next to him, the one they call the Christ, and he asks simply for mercy. Have a look, verse 42. Verse 42, and he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, from such an obviously bad man, it is an outrageous request. How could a man like that ever hope to be welcomed into Jesus' kingdom in heaven? What possible right does he have to ask Jesus such a thing? But even more outrageous is Jesus' reply. 
verse 43. Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And in that one outrageous promise, Jesus explodes all of our religious thinking. He takes the least deserving person we can possibly imagine, and without attaching any terms and conditions, he promises him, it pr promises him in a moment paradise. And notice, today. Not after a program of self-improvement, or making repayment for past sins, or after a long stretch in purgatory. If purgatory exists, and the Bible says nothing whatsoever about a place like purgatory existing, but if purgatory were to exist, surely this man of all men would need to go there? Today, you will be with me in paradise. So this path to paradise, it turns out, is a lot simpler than we think. It isn't a long list of rules to keep or rituals to perform or good deeds to do. It's simply a person to trust. No one gets to heaven by climbing high enough or living well enough. They simply ask Jesus for mercy and he gladly gives it. But of course, in one sense, this rightly offends our sense of justice. How can Jesus possibly do this? How can he make such an outrageous promise to such an undeserving man? So thirdly, the Christ, the Christ. Verses 44 to 46. Uh, as part of our reading from Luke 23 earlier on, we heard Jesus being examined by King Herod and Governor Pilate. And both men came to roughly the same conclusion as Pilate explained back in 23 verse 15. Nothing deserving death has been done by him. Jesus is, in other words, as far, far as Pilate's concerned, and he has all sorts of incentive to find Jesus guilty to keep the peace, but as far as Pilate's concerned, Jesus is innocent. He shouldn't be on the cross, and he needn't be on the cross. As the Christ, the Son of God, he has the power to save himself and come down from the cross. His enemies may be saying that mockingly, but it's true. And the Lord Jesus has proven over and over again that this is exactly who he is. He's done things only the Son of God could possibly do, and in public view. You read through one of the gospel accounts for yourself and see. It is the only reasonable conclusion. He shouldn't be on the cross. He needn't be on the cross. So why is he on the cross? And verse 44 holds the key. Now, the darkness described there fell between the hours of midday and 3 p.m., the least dark time of day. In other words, this was a supernatural darkness, a sign from heaven to help the crowd and to help us to understand the significance of Jesus' death. Now, throughout the Bible, darkness is used as a picture of God's righteous judgment. The darkness is a sign from God, telling us that as Jesus died, God's righteous judgment and justice and punishment was being poured out on the innocent Son of God. And this is no surprise to the Lord Jesus. Several times he's predicted this day as though it were part of a plan and the reason that he came. He'd come to die under the righteous judgment of God. He was born to bear the darkness of God's justice. 
he bore God's righteous punishment and satisfied justice so that he could turn to an undeserving criminal and say, today, you will be with me in paradise. He died to open for bad people like you and me the path to paradise. And it is, of course, the only path. And there isn't one path for good people and another for bad people. There isn't a, a merit path or a merit ladder and a mercy path. The only path to paradise and eternal life with God in heaven is the path that the criminal takes here. Simple trust, a plea for mercy. And Luke wants us to look at this carefully so that we'll find this path for ourselves. Now, traditionally, today is called Good Friday. And of course, it was an incredibly good day for this criminal, wasn't it? His last Friday on earth began with dread and ended in paradise. And the promise Jesus made to this man is the same promise that he'll make to anyone today who will put their trust in him. So the choice is held out to each of us here. It's as though we're standing in that group of bystanders as we consider the death of the Lord Jesus. We're being asked by Luke, are we going to bow to the pressure of the mob? Will we join in the mockery of the soldiers and the angry criminal? Or almost just as bad, shrug our shoulders and call it irrelevant, unimportant? Or will we take Jesus seriously? Take his claim to be the Christ, the Son of God, seriously. Take his saving, atoning death seriously. Will we admit our wrongdoing, ask Jesus for mercy, and receive his promise of paradise? And for the person who does that, who puts their trust in the crucified Christ, every day is a good day. Because every day on earth begins with their past forgiven and their future secure. That person has nothing left to earn, no ladder left to climb, no debt to repay. All their debts have been paid in full by Jesus' death on the cross, and they have no need to fear for the future, because by his death, Jesus has bought their ticket to heaven already. For that person, every day as their head, hit, head hits the pillow, they fall asleep one day closer to promised paradise with him, not by merit, by mercy, simply by trusting in the Lord Jesus who died for them. We're going to take a moment in the silence to reflect on what Jesus' death means for us, for you, and what it means or what it would mean for you to receive this promise of paradise from the Lord Jesus by putting your trust in him. Let's take a moment to reflect and think and pray, and then we'll sing again together.